Uh, before uh, I do dive into our text this week, though, I thought I'd share something that uh, was kind of fun, something I saw this week. Uh, I'm actually going to use a little bit of it later in my message, but there's an article I saw, and I think the whole thing was worth sharing. It read like this, looking for the perfect church? Don't waste your time looking at the church's statement of faith, evaluating their worship, or checking out their kids' programs. The pastor's hairstyle will tell you everything you need to know. (laughs) Find your pastor's hairdo below, or the closest thing to it, and it will tell you everything you need to know about his teaching. (laughs) I did not write any of this, so don't get mad at me. The Osteen. Light and fluffy, this hairstyle is perfect. This hairstyle is the perfect complement for your pastor's wishy-washy theology. (laughs) Usually paired with a creepy, impossibly white smile, this Osteen is the sign you might be attending a heretical church. Consider repenting. (laughs) Spurgeon's Heavenly Mane. Spurgeon's Heavenly Mane uh, came down and blessed the Prince of Preachers with a mane like a mighty lion. Very few men have dared to attempt this look. Even fewer pull it off. This pastor has solid theology, but prepare to get absolutely wrecked from the pulpit every Sunday. The King James Crew Cut. The King James Crew Cut. This is the only hair for the man of God who preaches from the authorized 1611 KJV Bible. Sissified, skinny jean-wearing, girly pastors need not apply. This pastor follows the old paths, and he's proud of it. Amen. This pastor, or a pastor with this haircut is likely to be a member of the NRA and drive a car with a giant Confederate flag emblazoned on the hood. I didn't write any of this. The youth pastor Yeet. I, I'm going to read this just like it's written. The youth pastor Yeet. This dank haircut betotes adorbs and will give you mad clout if paired with perfect crepes, yo. If you are Finiflex, your drip and hype the youth, secure the bag and get this haircut, this hard cut, no cap. Then it says, if you could read any of that, you're probably already a youth pastor. (laughs) The angry German monk. (laughs) If your pastor has this haircut, he's likely to drink a few too many beers and then go nail a bunch of complaints on the doors of the nearest Catholic church. (laughs) He might accidentally start a religious or political revolution, so keep a close eye on him. Also, keep him away from any Jews. Oh, that is terrible. No, it gets worse. (laughs) The woman. Hey, wait a minute. Your pastor's a woman? Send her downstairs to kids' ministry or women's ministry right away. I did not. I did not write it. I did not write this. (sighs) The shiny dome of holiness. This pastor is most likely very well educated as years of exams and thesis papers have robbed him of his hair. His shiny scalp reflects the glory of God and the stage lights on everyone present. Best paired with a solid beard and maybe some glasses. <laughs> the, the furtic fade. Pastors with this haircut are quite likely to make theologically dubious statements, hold their microphone like a rap artist, and make tons of money running a, a giant multi-site megachurch. Good for you, successful pastor. The Trump. Oh, no, wait a minute. You're not at church. You're at a Trump rally. Ah, close enough. Okay. That's fun. So this is our fourth week uh, in this series that we're calling Designed for Worship. And uh, so far we've looked at worship from a few different angles. We started by looking at worship as our default setting, um, kind of the way we were wired from the beginning. We looked at Genesis 1 and the way God 
created us to fulfill this cultural mandate um, here on earth um, while we recognize that we're living under a divine rule, God's gentle divine rule. And then we also looked at Revelation 22, the very last book in the Bible, and how uh, God's redemptive purpose will be to restore that place of worship, where we're back to the, the worship we were created for. Uh, in our second work, we talked about worship as this emotional outburst um, of love and gratitude, especially in the face of God's grace, uh, as we recognize the depth of our own brokenness and the way that that, that uh, burden is so fully erased by the overwhelming love of God. Our natural gut-level response is worship. And then last week, we kind of left the philosophical realm and the emotional realm, and we looked at worship from just a pragmatical, practical sense. Worship is good for us. It's good for our lives. Even more than normal times like 2020, uh, it's essential that we worship because it fixes our perspective. We talked about how overwhelming times like this can be and how easy it is for our enemy to pose and stage things just right to make them look uh, hopeless. And as we worship, it reminds us who we serve and just how big he is compared to what we face as we focus on and sing about how big God is, suddenly things like 2020 um, shrink and become manageable. Uh, uh, and we see that it's not only something we can survive, but something we can actually, we see opportunities to advance the kingdom of God. Well, as we wrap up this series uh, this week, I want to look at worship from one more aspect uh, that I think not only bears on 2020, but also on Open Table Community Church. Um, so let's start with our text. For today, this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you like to follow around, along in your own Bible, if not, the words will be on the screen. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah. As it is still called today, David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back to my, into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's house and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and blowing a ram's horn. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in a place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, cakes of dates, cakes of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. 
When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David returned to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me to be the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrated before him. Yes, I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. This is the word of the Lord. So this is actually um, one of the most important passages of Scripture. It's really easy to overlook, um, but it's, it, a lot actually happens here that really bears on, on history in general. Um, specifically, I like this exchange between David and Michael. Um, it's actually Michal, if you want to say it in, with the Hebrew twist. Um, but David lets his worship kind of get away from him. Um, and uh, and uh, if in, in other translations, he, his robe opens up and he kind of exposes himself. Um, I don't think they had whitey tidies back then. So <laughs> David, uh, uh, you know, kind of lets his worship get away. And his wife totally calls him on it. And I can actually, like, feel this passage in my guts because there's been a number of times that I've thought something was a good idea until I see it, like, reflected in the, my wife's eyes. And then I'm like... I went too far, didn't I? And yeah, that's usually how I know when I went too far. I see it in my wife's face. Um, but David has a much better excuse than I do because he's actually lost in worship for which he's willing to get completely undig- undignified. And, uh, and this verse is kind of convicting at times because I'm one of those people, as much as I move around um, during worship, I still usually feel like I'm holding back. Like on the inside, I'm like jumping up and down and bowing down and punching the air like I'm punching the devil in the face. And I'm like, on the inside, I'm like going completely nuts. And and uh, and I'm usually like, have this voice going, dude, you are ginormous. Nobody wants to see all that. Like, you settle down. But I can always hear David in the background going, I will get even more undignified than this. And it's kind of convicting at times. But the real import of this story actually has nothing to do with David's nakedness. Um, the reason this story is so important is because this is the day the ark comes to Jerusalem, which is huge, like gigantic. Um, it can actually be easy to miss, but uh, just a little bit before this, the, the city of Jerusalem was a Canaanite city called Jabus. Um, nobody had ever really heard of it. It was inconsequential. Um, much of the prophetic literature, uh, everything that goes on in Jesus' day about Jerusalem the crusades that shaped history and really kind of revealed the brokenness of the church at the time, all the way to the dramas in the Middle East today, are all centered around this city that up until this point, up until today's passage, was, was a non-entity. The city of Jerusalem didn't really exist. It was a whole different city called Jabus. And this passage is when that city becomes the city. Today's passage is when Jerusalem becomes Jerusalem. It's when it becomes this thing that that is a city everybody in the world knows about. Everybody's, you know, constantly conscious of what's going on in the Middle East, especially around Jerusalem. And this is a really big deal in the Old Testament because uh, the minute the Israelites leave the prom- or the Egypt and they're kind of in the wilderness, getting ready to go in the Promised Land, God is talking about this place where he will put his name, this, this kind of future place. When we get in there to the place where I will put my name, Here's what you do. And a lot of their worship was actually um, hinged on this moment. Uh, as soon as they start to kind of record the Torah 
and all the rules and rituals and even the guidelines in government that will come from this writing, um, God is already laying the groundwork for this place, this place where he will choose to have his name on it. Passages like Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 10. But you will soon cross the Jordan River and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you. When he gives you rest from all your enemies and you're living safely in the land, you must bring everything I command you, your burnt offering, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, and the offerings uh, to fulfill a vow to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored. You must celebrate there in the presence of the Lord your God with your sons and daughters and servants. And remember to include the Levites who live in your town, for they will receive no allotment of land among you. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings just anywhere you like. You may do so only at the place the Lord chooses within one of your tribal territories. There you must offer your burnt offerings and do everything I command you. So wherever this place turns out to be, that's an instrumental part. That is the piece that's crucial. This place where the Lord chooses to, to, for his name to be honored. The entire kind of redemptive system of the Old Testament hinges on this. And, uh, and he says you can't just make your sacrifices wherever you want. You have to go to the place. The place. And the crazy part is, today when David goes into Jerusalem and they bring the ark there, this is 450 to 500 years later. So, so from the Deuteronomy passage to David, there's almost 500 years. So just imagine, like, for us, just to give it some perspective, if the founding fathers said, there is one really crucial piece of your democracy, and, and you kind of have to have it for this whole thing to work. And as, and as far as we are now, we would have another 200 to 250 years before we get that piece. Can you imagine how weird that we don't even have a context for this, for, the, for, the, for this, this funny kind of gap that goes on here. Um, but it, and this isn't to say Israel didn't worship. They had moments where they had you know selective worship, and there was Levites in each town where they kind of did worship. And we talked last week about how every time they went into battle, they took the ark with them, and the ark and the worship leaders actually went first into battle. And that was kind of the that's kind of the closest thing we see to any kind of corporate worship in the Old Testament. We kind of read the Torah, and we under, and we just assume that this was like a central feature in everything they did. That that this kind of worship that was outlined was the way they did everything. And it actually doesn't even really start until four or 500 years later. It's kind of bizarre. But, uh, um, but David finally takes uh, this ark in. And many of us know David as kind of this boy with a slingshot or this guy who met Bathsheba on Tinder or maybe the psalmist and the king, but... David's real impact on history, his, uh, his real mark that he made that we actually experience today was as a church planner. David kind of started the church of Israel without going into all the political intrigue that existed. David unified the nation. Um, before this, uh, you know, we know about David being kind of anointed uh, king as a child. You know, the prophet came and anointed him. And there was actually already a king, so that was awkward. And, uh, and so David lives his entire life like having the prophet tell him, you're the king of Israel, but there's another king. And big drama ensues. And, and once that other king dies, he actually dies, and still David doesn't become king of Israel. If you read it, it's like 14 years before he becomes king. He actually becomes king of two of the little tribes in the south, and he just waits. He just kind of sits and waits for God to bring because God made the promise. It's kind of on God to 
bring it to fulfillment. So David just waits. And quite a while later, the other ten tribes come down. They meet with David. They say, we would like for you to be the king of all of us. Uh, We would like for you to be the king of all of Israel. And David says yes. And the very first thing he does as king, brand new king, the very first thing he does is conquer Jabbok. And it was this gorgeous walled city. It was a safe city. He knew its value. And he conquered Jabbok and renamed it Jerusalem. It was his very first act as king, was to, to conquer this beautiful city. And, and then he immediately goes and gets the ark. Uh, and then today's passage, we kind of we come into David um, uh, trying to move the ark in, and he throws it on an ox cart, kind of the, the fastest, safest way to move the ark, and, uh, until the ox cart hits a bump. And starts to wobble. Uzzah reaches out and drops dead. And David, super confused, like almost all of our, us are when we read it, um, bails on the idea uh, and, and gives up. And I think what he did was he went and studied. Because when he comes back, it, it, uh, it says that, you know, every six steps the people carrying the ark took, they made a sacrifice. Well, it's no longer on an ox cart. And if you go back to the Torah, Moses actually tells them how to move the ark. And what they would do is the ark had these huge rings built in on the side of it. They would run long poles through the rings so the Levites could pick it up on their shoulders and carry the ark, which was the way it was supposed to be carried. It was never supposed to be put on, uh, on an ox cart. It was, that was not the way it was supposed to be moved. And here's the deal. This, that concept has about a million amazing metaphors that any preacher loves to tease out the way the ark was was built. I don't really have time to get deep into it, but I do want to say two things. First, um, the presence of God is to be moved on the backs of worshipers. I absolutely love that. You can't mechanize it. You can't make a formula out of it. You can't, uh, you know, make it a machine and an incorporation. It's supposed to be advanced on the backs of of worshipers, and I love that God set it up that way, that uh, anywhere the ark went, I'm sure the ox cart made more sense, the thought of carrying that thing that far, it's this big, heavy, you know, deal, and then stopping every six steps to make a sacrifice, must have seemed ridiculously laborious, an ox cart makes way more sense, but I just love that God said that his presence moves on the backs of his people, and second, um, God tells us to do certain things a certain way for a reason. Um, I'm sure to David, the ox cart made the most sense. It was the most logical and pragmatic. Um, But there's a reason God tells us to do things a certain way. Uh, In the end, God's way proved to be the right way. It seemed old-fashioned. It seemed outdated. But it was the right way to move the ark, and it worked. Um, I think a lot of times we have a tendency, I'm not going to bear on this heavy, but we have a tendency to look at the ways of God and think that they're outdated and old. And we don't understand them. Sometimes they don't make pragmatical sense to us. But there's a reason God tells us to do things a certain way. And that is important. There's so much more, but we do have to move on. Um, In the end, because of Uzzah's tragic death, David brings the ark back the right way. And this time he manages it to bring to bring the ark all the way back to Jerusalem where he dances like Magic Mike. But um, <clears throat> i got to tell you, when my wife read this, she was like, who's Magic Mike? I was like, I love you. You are awesome. <laughs> Remember a couple weeks ago when I said, 
you know, Jesus said there's going to come a day when you'll be held responsible for every word you speak. Yeah, I live in the weight of that. But in the end, David accomplishes his goal, and he creates a place of worship for Jerusalem, arguably making it the greatest city historically, maybe the most important city historically in the world. The, the fact that Jerusalem as a city has been as influential as it is since that day, since that moment, um, is huge. David sets the ark up in a big tent, much like the tabernacle Moses had built in the wilderness. Um, and even though he was thrilled, um, so excited that he table danced, um, he's still not satisfied. David um, spends the rest of his life gathering resources and laying plans to build a great temple to put the ark in. And it turns out to be his son Solomon who actually does it, but it was David's life's work was this ark. Everything that we know of David and all the amazing stories and, and just this huge persona of King David was really all about this, this ark, everything he did. To the day he died, on his death day, he laid out, here's all the resources I have stored up. Please build the, the temple. Like this was his, his labor of love was this ark. And all of this begs the question, why? Why? Why was this David's first act as king? Why did David risk moving the ark when the first attempt went so terribly? Why did David worship so extravagantly with all the trappings of, wor- of, of royalty at his disposal? Everything he could have done, everything he could have built, why does he consume himself with the ark? For that matter, why does God tell the Israelites that they can't just worship anywhere? There has to be a place. Why is having a place for worship so important? The answer to that question is why I've included this passage in our study of worship. We've looked at worship from kind of our our initial wiring standpoint, from this emotional standpoint, from the standpoint of a choice that's good for us. But this morning I want to look at worship as a community builder. I submit that worship is what makes us a people. David was anointed king by the big shot prophet. He knows he's, he's going to be king. And at that time, the, the, the nation was divided. There was ten tribes. They were broken. They fought with each other. They argued. They didn't get along. They were deeply divided. And when they came to him and asked him to be king, he knew if he wants to turn this 12 broken, angry, arguing, fighting tribes into Israel, into one nation. He was going to have to get them together with one common vision of worshiping one God. David knew that alliances and agreements were paper thin. But when people gather together in the same place to worship the same God, they at least have a chance of becoming a people. And the reason for this is simple. You become like the people you hang out with. This is simple. We all tell our teenagers this. Our parents told us this when we were teenagers. Everybody knows you become like the people you hang out with. David knew that 12 tribes, if they were going to start thinking like a single Israel, they were going to have to spend time together. They were going to need a place where they could gather and be together and let the worship of God begin to shape their identity as a people. I personally think David saw the wisdom of Deuteronomy 
where God commanded that they gather in a single place, not just anywhere they want. You can't just do this anywhere. You need to be in a single place. And God knew that he was going to have to, if he wanted to build a people, he was going to have to obey that scripture. The reality is you become like the people you hang around with. And this carries on the New Testament. Paul draws on the negative side of this in 1 Corinthians where he says, Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. You hang out with the wrong people, it will affect your character. You become like those you hang out with. We all know this to be true. Earlier I was reading, uh, when I was reading the haircut thing, the youth pastor one. This dank haircut betotes adorbs, and you will get mad cloud if paired with perfect creps, yo. If you, <laughs> I can't even hardly read this. If you be finiflex your drip, what? And hype the youth, secure the bag and get this cut, yo, this hard cut. No cap. The crazy thing is, I went home after reading this the first time. I read it to my 19-year-old son. He understood every word. He, had, he explained to me, oh, yeah, that means this, that means this. Those are shoes. I'm like, shoes? Yeah. Every word is gibberish. And yet he understood it perfectly. You start to sound like the people you hang out with. My son Josiah has really heavily invested himself in learning the things that he cares about, things that he loves. He likes to play electric guitar and loves sound stuff. And I'm a little bit of a musician, and when he gets to talking, I don't understand a word he's saying. It is like a foreign language. And the crazy thing is, I raised him, and I didn't teach him that language. And so he picked it up somewhere. He picked it up by hanging out with other musicians, by hanging out with other sound guys. And now he talks in a whole different language that I don't speak. You begin to talk. Esther does that with design stuff. She'll be like, babe, the rule of three. And I'm like, what? He's like, feng shui, focal point. Like, I'm like, I don't understand any of these words that you're saying. What color do you want the wall painted? That's all I need to know. You become like the people you hang around with. But I came up with a more 21st century way of saying this to kind of express this reality. And it goes like this. Your algorithm dictates your reality. Your algorithm dictates your reality. Let me explain what I mean by that. Anybody familiar with the algorithms that like run our life right now? Uh, everyone um, notices that. Anybody had that creepy thing where you talk about something and then the ad pops up on Facebook like the next day? There's an algorithm that runs pretty much everything we see. Um, this actually started, it's really creepy. It started, at, Target is actually the company that started this, believe it or not. Um, and this was way back before the internet was really a thing. This is back in the 90s. And Target had this idea. They realized that if you could figure out when a woman was pregnant at the beginning of her pregnancy, you had a gold mine. If you could target a newly pregnant woman with ads, you could make a fortune. And so what they did was they went and they hired the, uh, the, most, uh, the smartest PhD mathematician they could find at the time. They put him together with a bunch of marketing people. And they were like, if we can capture this woman, we know she's going to need all this prenatal stuff. She's going to need a car seat. She's going to need a crib. She's going to need this. She's going to need that. And then if we can keep sending her ads after she has a baby, we know she's going to need diapers. She's going to need wipes. And she's going to be tired. So while she's here getting diaper and wipes, she's probably going to buy her milk and cereal here. And if we can just figure out who this woman is, we make a fortune. And so they, they set this mathematician, can you come up with a way to figure out when a woman's pregnant? They put him with marketing guys. They gave him all, access to all their target stuff. And 
And he did it. He said, there's four to six purchases. And if any woman makes these four to six purchases in a four-week period, she has a 90% chance of being pregnant. And it wasn't like normal. It wasn't like if she's buying a pregnancy test. This is like groceries and lotion and like this weird combination of stuff. If this woman buys these four to six things in a four-week period, she's pregnant. And so they were like, they, they came up with the, 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 target, the target membership card thing, the red card. That just, that's so that they know what you're buying. And the, that and the credit card combined, they were keeping track of everybody's purchases. And when you would get a Target ad, your Target flyer was different than your neighbor's. They were literally targeted per person. And, uh, and they were sending them out. Um, and, they were, and the way that they got busted was this man calls a Target. And he, he's like, what the heck is wrong with this place? Oh, my daughter is 16 years old and you're targeted. And the manager was like, I have no, because this is obviously corporate stuff. I have no clue what you're talking about, but I will look into it. He hangs up, calls corporate. Corporate is like, oh, crap. Yeah, we have this thing. The, the algorithm must have failed us. Give the guy a gift card. Do something. So the guy, you know, the manager calls the guy back. He's like, I'm so sorry. And the guy goes, no, actually, I owe you an apology. Apparently, I don't know what's going on in my own house. My 16-year-old daughter's pregnant. And, and Target knew before the girl did. Target knew that this girl was pregnant before her or her family knew. And this was how it, it, it got out that Target was, was using this, this new algorithm concept to target people for marketing. And this was the birth of these algorithms that, that kind of drive our lives. Every search we make on Google, everything you ask Siri, goes into your algorithm. And the truly dangerous part is once you kind of start building your algorithm, it, it creates your reality, your bias. They did a, a study in Turkey where they took a conservative a liberal and a moderate, and this is by Turkish standards, so this is diff different definitions than what we have, um, and on their own laptop, they just had them search, um, uh, what was it they had them search? I think they just had them search Turkey or something like that, or yeah, the city in Turkey, and the conservative got, the first five things were about the Muslim Brotherhood. The liberal got a bunch of, his first five things on Google were these massacres and injustices and this social injustice thing. And the moderate got vacation spots in Turkey. Like, and, and this is Google. This is the thing you go to thinking you're getting just the, the raw information about the universe. I just want to know things. And so I go to Google and Google gives me things. Except Google is, is building off of this algorithm. And your algorithm then from then on dictates the reality you have access to. My nine-year-old son is, act, or my nine-year-old grandson has actually figured this out. Uh, he likes to watch YouTube videos and he likes to watch like toy unpacking videos and Roblox, whatever that is. And and you know if you ever play around on YouTube, you got your suggested videos that come up. Well, he noticed once Leia got old enough to start watching Cocomelon and the preschool stuff that it was messing with his suggested videos. And so he went up to the playroom and created like his TV and her TV. And, and when she wanted to watch TV on his, like, no, you already messed up the living room TV. Like, you can't watch anything on this one. Because she was messing with his algorithm. Like, I count on my algorithm to come up with new videos for me. I don't want preschool stuff popping up. At nine, he figured it out. He figured out that we're driven. What we have access to depends on our algorithm. Programmers call this GIGO. Garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you put in, you get out. Garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you program is what you get. In Christianity, we call this discipleship. 
discipleship. What we put in is what we get out. And there's millions of formulas on how to do it. You can take books and some denominations have old classes you have to take. We call it discipleship. Other ones really stress certain disciplines they want you to do, and we call that discipleship. And we teach it, and there's a million books on it and stuff. But I'm convinced discipleship is more like the algorithms that we live by now. Discipleship is built one Sunday at a time, one prayer at a time, one song at a time, one sermon at a time, one Bible study at a time. And as we, as we do these things, especially with the people of God, it slowly begins to change our reality. Discipleship happens over time. Suddenly we start to become different than we were. And I'm convinced that real discipleship is, is just like these algorithms. It's, it's something that happens every single time we access worship. This is why Jesus' definition of discipleship, the way he did discipleship, was he went, come, follow me. He didn't say memorize these things. He didn't say agree to these things. He didn't say learn all this stuff and, and make some kind of mental you know, agreement to this list of doctrines. He said, come follow me. Not here's a theoretical or a theological statement to believe, but walk with me. Spend time with me. Live with me one day at a time. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he's getting ready to return to the Father. He's coming toward the end of his life. He's going to be preparing a place for them. And he says this out of nowhere, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas gets frustrated and says, no, we don't. We have no idea where you're going. How in the world could we know the way? I love Thomas so much. I get Thomas. Thomas is like, is like every single time we hear from Thomas, He's, he's saying something, like he was there. He showed up every day. Like Thomas is in the stories. You know, we kind of call him Doubting Thomas like he's a bad guy. But, I mean, he was there. He came. He was just like, dude, I'm struggling with this. This is the one where Jesus, you know, they all saw Jesus. He's like, unless I stick my hand in his side and my finger in the holes in his hands, there's no way I can buy this. And Jesus showed up. He's like, here's my side. Here's my hand. I love Thomas. I get Thomas. In fact, have you ever heard a preacher say something and you're like, you keep saying those words like I should know what they mean. I have no clue what you're even talking about. Like a lot of Christianese, like we say it like everybody should understand it and you're sitting out there, I don't even know how to access that. Thomas would have called him on that. Thomas goes, what are you talking about? We have no idea what is happening right now. We don't know where you're going. How on earth could we know how to get there? And Jesus makes this huge statement that we all Love so much. Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Thomas is asking for directions, and Jesus gives him a relationship. Thomas is asking for a map, and Jesus gives him a person. I, I'm the way. You don't need directions. I'll be sitting in the car with you. I am the way. Stay with me. I'm convinced there's no shortcuts to discipleship. It happens over time. We can study a lot and maybe learn some things faster, and that has some benefits. You can throw yourself into spiritual disciplines, and I'm sure that's really good for your life. You'll see some fruit from that. 
But real discipleship is a relationship. And relationships grow over time. And just as I'm convinced that real discipleship happens over time, I firmly believe that real discipleship never happens alone. The Bible refers to the people of God as the body of Christ. And if we're going to grow in discipleship with Christ, we spend time with his body. We spend time with the, with the person, the body of Christ. It's not good for you to be alone. You need people. You, can't, you, you cannot experience the life of God the way God intended it to be alone. You just can't do it. God would look at that relationship and go, this is not good. No matter where you go in Scripture, we're meant to do life together. And the glue that makes that work is something that David figured out 3,000 years ago. It's worship. He realized, if I don't gather this people together, if I don't gather the people of God in a place where they can worship together, loading up their algorithms with truth, with beautiful words with which they can express their love for God, if we don't get them together and slowly start to talk differently and act differently and think differently, I'll never make a people. Am I talking about brainwashing? Absolutely I am. Yes. That is exactly what I'm talking about. The truth is, no matter who you hang out with, you're going to get brainwashed. I mean, you can't, you can't learn electric guitar without getting brainwashed into guitar lingo. You might think you're not going to, but in like six months you're going to be talking all kinds of crazy stuff that I won't even understand. There is no neutral. The more you feed into the matrix, the, the more it begins to shape you. You're going to get brainwashed, but you have a choice as to, as to who you're going to allow to brainwash you. Who do you want to be like? Do we want to be like the world? If so, then absolutely we should hang out with the world. But if we want to be like Jesus, we want to act like Jesus and think like Jesus and love like Jesus and serve others like Jesus and change the world like Jesus and grow more like Jesus, then we gather together with people and we bring somebody. Ah, but what if this person comes? Ah, but what if that person comes? What? You know, they try to come up with some way to get me to... And no matter how much I try to, well, I would try to do this. Well, I'd sure hope that I would do this. I would sure, you know, I'd try to... They're never happy until they come up with somebody, yeah, I would probably have to exclude that person. You know, but here's the deal. The reason we try to be open and, and, and inviting and accepting is I know myself fairly well, and I am a hot mess. I mean, I'm, I'm half the time I'm a disaster. I got all kinds of issues, and I know for a fact that my best shot at being a decent disciple is if I surround myself with people who have the same goals. By myself, I'd be a wreck. I'd be a disaster. I know my only chance of growing more like Jesus is if I keep you people around me. If I keep people with me. When I'm having a crappy day, I need somebody to pick me up. When I'm getting sloppy, I need somebody to set me straight. When I'm being selfish, I need somebody to study Matthew 25 with me and help me to look at people less fortunate than myself. I know me, and I don't stand a chance without my people. Now, if I know that I can never make it without you guys, where do you think I think the broken people in this world should be? Because I trust you guys to get me there. 
Of course I want broken people with you guys. Of course I want the broken and the downtrodden and the hurting and those who are all jacked up in a million different ways right here. Changing one sermon at a time, one prayer at a time, one song at a time. Becoming a people. I'm sure, how in the world could I say, get your stuff together and then come? That could never happen. I couldn't do that. I couldn't pull that off. I can't get my stuff together without you guys. Do I think what we do matters? Absolutely, what we do matters. Do I think holiness is important? Definitely, holiness is important. But the way we get there is by surrounding ourselves with people who are focusing with us on something bigger than us. So as we close out the series on worship, that is actually a follow-up to our series on prayer, that we kind of tacked on this, this upward prayer where God is the, the central object and focus, this thing we call worship, this thing that makes us a people. When we acknowledge that our design, our wiring is to worship, when we bring our guts and our deepest emotions to God in worship as in kind of an upward outburst of everything we're feeling, and as we choose to take our eyes off of the garbage that the enemy is always trying to keep in front of us, and we choose to put them on God instead, as we do all these things together in the same place and at the same time, I, th- I think it changes us. I think it makes us a people. I think it bonds us together. I mean, think about this. We, we, are, we are truly weird. Like, in the grand scheme of things, this is not normal. Like, who else, like, stands up and sings along with a really amateur band once a week and then sits down and lets somebody lecture at them for 45 minutes? Who does that? That is not, that is not normal. And, and we do it of our own free will, which is weirder. But even, even weirder than that in my book is going through life worshiping money or worshiping sex or worshiping a career or worshiping all manner of things that can never fulfill us. Knowing in our gut that something has to be at the center. None of us just drift. We have to have something that's at the center of it all. Something that we aim our lives at. Something we pour our energy and life and love into. Church is weird. Don't kid yourself, but it's much weirder to walk around knowing there's supposed to be something bigger than me that I'm pointed at, not knowing what that is. But as we gather, uh, it can't just be to check off some spiritual requirement for the week. Yeah, I made church. We come to change. We come to grow and morph and mature and be different. And the way that we do that is through worship. So the way I'd love to close the sermon today, we've, for the last eight weeks, it's been a double series we did. We've been ending praying something together. So I would just like to close this series out. Next week we're starting a new series called Surviving the Apocalypse. Super excited about it. The kids, we're, the kids are doing it too, and we've actually got like a zombie character that's, that's going to be 
Because as soon as I told Josh about it, he was like, zombie apocalypse. We've got to do zombies. So we're trying to figure out a way to make a zombie, like, children's church fun. <laughs> like, I don't know how yet. We're going to get there. It'll be fun. Of course, my kids were involved. So like, we could have an eye hanging out. No, rein it in. Back up. Different zombie. Yeah. And so this will be the close of our series on prayer and worship. And so I'd just like to pray together kind of the way we started it all off, which is with the Lord's Prayer. We spent a lot of time with this prayer this year, just as we've been going through 2020 together uh, and just enduring a lot. We found a lot of comfort in this prayer that Jesus um, asked us to pray. So I just want to close this out by praying together this ancient prayer. And then we'll gather around the table and sing one last song together. So would you please pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory, uh, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.